0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 65 of the John Riley Project. It's Sunday, August 4th, 2019. We are broadcasting, as we always do, from the city in the country, Poway, California. Welcome to the podcast. You know, this is a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we love to kind of explore each of those topics. There's always current news that kind of bring some of these thoughts to mind. And, you know, we're, we're always out there pursuing our own happiness, but sometimes tragedy occurs. And that's what we saw today and yesterday with the terrible mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. I'm going to share my thoughts and comments on that. Some things you probably won't hear from the mainstream media or from the cable news. I've got some interesting angles. Um, I also want to explore the topic of Donald Trump, but specifically the loyalty to Donald Trump, which I think is... Incredible. Uh, And I've got some examples and some stories I want to share with you. Um, So we have a number of things to talk about, all kind of a national scope. But, you know, I'm, I'm still reeling, by the way. It's about 630 on Sunday as I'm recording this. And I watched that Padre doctor game. The Padres had a three run lead in the eighth and they ended up losing. They scored 10 runs and lost um, just so hard to root for this team. Now, granted, they're doing so much better than they have in the past. We have hope, you know, but still it's like there's a San Diego sports curse, man. There's like this bad juju going on with our teams here in town. Um, So I just hope that one day. You know, my wife and I—we often joke. We just want to be alive when the Padres win the World Series. But today was a tough game. They lost it in the bottom of the ninth up at Dodger Stadium, and so yeah, we're st- we're still reeling from it. You know, Kirby Yates was getting squeezed there at the end, and his team didn't play good defense, and looked like there was a little bit of a of a argument going on between Kirby Yates and his catcher Francisco Mejia. So I'm anxious to hear some of the um, post game comments on that. But, you know, I I always have a bet. Every time the Padres and the Dodgers play, um, my buddy Dennis over at the Postal Annex in Poway, the one right next to Target, he's a big Dodger fan. So we always have a bet and it's, you know, we buy each other lunch and... I needed the win today to get a split on the four-game series, and it would have been a push. So I'm going to owe him lunch now since the Padres lost the series 3-1. to But he got me lunch last time when the Padres took care of business before the All-Star break. So it's all good. But um, yeah, I'm still kind of reeling from that game. Oh, hey, also, um, my wife and one of her girlfriends, they went up to Laguna Beach to the uh, Pageant of the Masters. This is a big art festival up in Laguna Beach, and she had a great time. She was sharing some stories with me of some amazing art, and I guess they have, you know, humans that are integrated into the art, and sometimes you don't realize that they're actually real humans. And so she was sharing with me all these stories, and it sounds like a fabulous event. It's something that I've often heard about. I've had friends that have gone. I've personally never gone. So now we're already talking about it. Maybe next year we'll make the trek up there and check it out. So yeah, Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach. That's an artistic community up there in South Orange County. So that should be fun. But she had a great time. Um, But yeah, let's get into these, these awful mass shootings. I mean, these have been dominating the news on all the cable stations, as you would expect they would, And, you know, if it if it bleeds, it leads. So um, these are big, you know, ratings boosters for the media. But, you know, it's obviously just a tragic situation. 20 people lost their lives in El Paso. Nine lost their lives in Dayton, Ohio. Plus, there are I don't know how many that are injured that are in the hospital. Is it 40 additional people? Something like that. So just and they both happen within 24 hours. So, you know, you're you hear a lot of the a lot of the presidential candidates have been interviewed. They're offering their comments. And, you know, Beto O'Rourke, a Democratic presidential candidate, he, he's from El Paso. So, you know, he was there consoling the victims. But what you'll often hear whenever we have these mass shootings is all the talk about gun control. And I kind of want to set that aside because we've all heard the arguments pro and con. And I'll save that maybe for another podcast because I, I, I don't want to repeat a lot of the same old. You know, talking points that you hear from both sides of the argument. Um, But I I really want to kind of look at it from a couple of different angles. But first of all, obviously, in both cases, the shooter is clearly at fault. You know, everyone's trying to blame this person, blame that person, um, blame Trump, blame the NRA. Ultimately, obviously, ultimately, the shooter is the problem. Um, They're the ones that are at fault but there's a lot of other influences here. And yeah, the NRA plays a role. Political leadership plays a role. A lot of things are involved here. But in my opinion, if you like, look at At these shootings. And and the same thing happened here when we had the mass shooting in Poway. And thankfully, only one person lost their lives, which is awful in itself. Um, You know, four people were injured in that. You know, we had a shooter in that case that, you know, they were uh, here in Poway at that shooting. This was a was a hate crime, a form of Domestic terrorism, um, but you saw this in El Paso, where the shooter—you know—he had his own manifesto, um, you know, calling out, you know, the invasion of illegal aliens and of Mexicans, Hispanics into America. So I think a lot of this is really—I mean, again, I'm setting the guns part aside. It's—it's it's like a bad philosophy. The way people and society, culture, the media, the way we cover things. A lot of it comes from of a from a uh, a misguided perspective, a misguided philosophy. The first issue is collectivism because think about this all of these cases they 're fueled by racism they're, these these hate crimes um, are fueled by nationalism they 're fueled by various versions of bigotry against you know here in Poway is against Jews, and the shooting in Orlando was against the LGBTq community, so a lot of these shootings are driven by racism, nationalism, bigotry. I mean, really the same thing is true if you look at a lot of the terrorism in the Middle East that are driven by a lot of these similar collectivist um, perspectives because they are different religions fighting against each other, different um, factions of the same religion fighting against each other, different nations fighting against each other. And so this this all comes down to you know thinking of seeing the people rather than as individuals, seeing them as a group, and that's what the this this crazed shooter did in El Paso, you know, in the manifesto. And I read portions of it. It was it was a mind blowing document, and I was just getting really kind of sad reading it. It was just so shatter, you know, kind of shuddering just to read that manifesto. But it was clearly driven by hate. Um, you know, we don't like those people and those people are harming us. Those people are calming our culture. This is all about um, it's driven by fear, fear, uncertainty, doubt. And it's like good guys, bad guys. You know, I often joke it's like Yankees, Red Sox. People line up supporting their team and then positioning the other team as the bad guys. And they tend to frame that whole bad team with a negative stereotype. And they fail to see the individual. They see the collective. They see the group. And this, in my opinion, is a huge problem um, where we are, it goes back again to this identity politics piece where you see people that that are immersed in it and and then act out in evil ways with hate, according to large groups, large collectives based on their political identity. And of course, we have a president that plays right into it, a president who is really an inspiration for some of these people, a president that emboldens a lot of these hate crimes or these these mass shooters that in some ways gives license To some of these things that have happened. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is encouraging this kind of activity, although some might believe he is. um, But it's clear that his rhetoric, it's clear that his um, rallies and some of the offhand remarks and jokes and comments he makes serves as inspiration. And when you read that manifesto from the shooter in El Paso, he's calling on a lot of these same themes, Um, of, you know, America first and nationalism that you see and hear from President Trump. Um, and, you know, think about all the things that have come from Trump. You know, this whole notion of build the wall, send her back, you know, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously? OK, just knock the hell. I promise you I'll pay for the legal fees. I mean, he actually says that at his rallies. He inspires not only this us versus them, this good guy, bad guy, this collectivist thinking, but he makes remarks saying you know, encouraging violence and saying, don't worry about it. I'll cover you. I'll pay your legal fees. I mean, it's insane that this is coming from a person that is the leader of our country. Um, And he goes on to say things like calling for a complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. So again, this sort of collectivist angle, you know, positioning Muslims, positioning Mexicans as rapists and criminals. And this is collectivist thinking. This is broad brush thinking, categorizing or castigating an entire group as good or evil, and then playing that up politically to try to divide the nation and generate support. It's shameful. It's disgraceful that this kind of thing happens Um, in the first place that we have these shootings. But when we have a president, a leader of our nation that essentially throws gasoline on the fire, that is emboldening these people to behave in these ways, that is encouraging this this hatefulness, this collectivist angle to it, to me is just an incredible problem. Um, I mean, we've talked about you know, what are the things you can do? And, you know, some people are saying, you know, your vote matters in 2020 and definitely your vote does. And I would encourage you to vote for what you believe in. Um, But there's still so much more we need to do. And, um, but again, I think we need to get beyond this collectivist thinking. And, you know, again, Martin Luther King Jr. said the same thing, you know, it's, content of character, not color of skin. You know, look at the individual traits of each individual rather than the collective group. So um, again, I, I just I just think this philosophy position is something that we really need to address. And that's why I'm a big believer in individual rights, in individualism, and in, in, in really seeing each individual based on their own behavior, their own actions, their own character. And that's how they should be judged. We've got to get beyond this collective thinking, but leadership does matter. And when we have a, a leader that is reinforcing this sort of collectivist thinking, this good guy, bad guy, we got a problem. And um, again, the shooter is responsible. The shooter is at fault. The shooter is the one that needs to be held most fully accountable. But there are so many other things that are going on that encourage those shooters. Um, and let's get to another part of this. I say it's, it's a lot of this is based on a bad philosophy. And it's not just this notion of collectivism versus individualism, which I believe is important. I and mean, again, that's why I talk about this podcast is about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, all men are created equal. And that inalienable rights are individual rights. We each have a right to our own life, a right to liberty, and a right to pursue our own happiness. Those are individual rights rights and individualism, I think in many ways is a cure to a lot of this because we'll be able to get beyond this collective, collectivized hate. But another angle to this, and we've seen this with a lot of these shooters, is this notion of nihilism. You know, this essentially meaning believing that life doesn't matter. Life is meaningless. And and you see this from these shooters. They're, they're often very troubled souls and, you know, people will jump to mental illness and other things, but it's deeper, deeper. Than that, in my in my opinion, um, these shooters they don't have any regard for the life of others. They really don't have any regard for their own life because they know that going into these, they're going out in a blaze of glory, and, and they often will end their own lives in suicide, or they come out with full body armor and you know they're going out like Rambo. Um, they're going out essentially um, in like in a blaze of glory and because the, to them this is the one opportunity they think they can make their life meaningful. And I I'll give credit to the news media now they're they're beginning to not state the name of the shooter. I th- I think it's good to say it in the beginning, but after that it doesn't need to be repeated ad infinitum. Um and that applies to regardless of race. Um you know, I think that it's good that we're not giving future shooters inspiration that they're going to be um, essentially um, remembered um, for generations. We don't want to do that. But a lot of these people, these shooters, really, they they think their life is, is worthless. And there's a number of common factors that, and I saw this online, I thought this was really good, that there are four commonalities of these mass shooters. One is that they've experienced early childhood trauma. They've either experienced or witnessed violence at a very young age. Secondly, something happened to them within the last few weeks or months, um, something, some kind of a personal crisis, you know, maybe they um, lost a loved one, maybe a relationship ended, maybe they had trouble at work, um, maybe they lost their job, you know, some sort of a personal crisis has occurred that has triggered this. Um, and then, of course, they, um, you know, they they then, are able to go online and study the actions of others. They're able to seek validation for the way they feel. And then they have the means to carry out the plan. But again, all of this comes down to the point that they just don't care about the the notion of life, whether it's their own life or the life of others. Um, They just give up. They just don't give a shit. And it's a, it's terrible. Um, But it comes down to a bad philosophy. Because I believe we should be encouraging this notion of valuing your own life. Again, that's why this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's about taking ownership of your own life and loving yourself, believing in yourself. Those are a lot of the common themes we talk about when we get into some of our self-improvement episodes. Um, It's about uh, taking proactive control of your life and of your career and of your relationships, it's taking that kind of bold action, taking control of yourself and really, you know, pursuing your own rational self interest. If we saw our own life in those, in those, um, in that light, then we would see a dramatic decrease in these mass shootings, a dramatic decrease in suicides, a dramatic decrease in, in, um, drug addiction and a lot of other areas because it comes down to a bad philosophy. People don't put their lives first, you know? And I think in a lot of cases, um, we're seeing people, you know, there, there's this whole notion of sacrifice where, other people come first, and I think this plays into this. Like you hear the Democratic uh, presidential candidates all saying they're going to give free health care to all the illegal aliens. Well, we can debate that topic, and, and there's you know pros and cons to that. But imagine if you're one of these, these shooters, and you hear that, if they don't value their own life. And instead, they're being told that they must sacrifice themselves for the benefit of others, that they must essentially be um, taking a back seat to illegal aliens and then paying for them. It's no wonder that they react negatively, that some people have a problem with that. But again, it goes to a bad philosophy. It's a philosophy of not taking care of yourself, whether it's the individual shooter or the illegal alien covering their own healthcare expenses. It, it comes down to people taking self-ownership. And we largely are um, discounting that in, in America. We are largely looking to blame the other guy, to make the other guy pay, rather than looking within ourselves and saying, what can I do to better my own life? And again, I think this comes down to a flawed philosophy. Um, so when you see this notion of, um, being, being told to take a back seat to the needs of other people, that just fuels more of this hatred, fuels more of this paranoia, this fear. Um, and that's when you, you, it gets highlighted by all this rhetoric that we hear from the president. We hear from other political leaders. We hear in social media and other parts of the internet. It plays into that, and then it leads to terrible outcomes. So again, I think... There, there, there's so many factors to these mass shootings. Um, you know, guns are an issue, and again, I'm for the most part I'm trying to set that aside because I don't want to repeat the same old conversations. Um, but there's more to it, and I think if you really think of it at the highest level, it really comes down to philosophy: how you see the world, how you believe you fit in the world. Um, I think we need to be encouraging individualism, individual rights. We need to be encouraging people taking self-ownership of their own life. Um, we need to people to be embrace the meaningfulness of their own life and the lives of others. And then we can get beyond the evilness of collectivism and the evilness of nihilism, because that's all part of the problem that fuels it. But I do want to make one comment on guns. And, and this is a comment that I don't ever hear anyone talk about. And so I want to at least say this again. I don't want to play into the same rehearsed bullet points that we hear from the left and the right, but there is one very straightforward way we can reduce gun violence and save far more lives than these awful, terrible mass shootings. And if you look at, um, all the cases where there is. Now, I'm, I'm going to set suicide aside and just look at homicide. If we have a sense of proportion, we can see that there are far more lives lost in individual shootings, typically with handguns, than there are in these mass shootings with um, you know, semi-automatic rifles, et cetera. And, um, but of course, the media... If it bleeds, it leads. That's why the media loves these mass shootings, because it gets such massive ratings, and they will cover them 24-7. So it creates sort of a skewed perspective of reality. Um, I believe if we want to save lives, if we want to um, greatly reduce the amount of gun violence and the amount of deaths as a result of gun violence, there is one thing that Congress and the president can do but they've got to be brave, they've got to be bold and what they need to do is end the war on drugs because there are far more lives lost in inner cities typically um you'll see a lot of this that it might be people of color a lot of cases these are turf wars these are battles amongst gangs where there are drive-by shootings or there's vigilanteism you know because think about it if drugs are being distributed they're going through underground channels from manufacturers to distributors to dealers and to buyers in the in the legal world if there is a contract violation we have a process for that we have a court system if there is theft we have a process for that. We have police. We have courts. Um, there's ways of restitution. There are way. Excuse me. There are ways that people can get um, justice. Um, in some cases, they can uh, win damages through the legal justice system. But with the war on drugs, there is a tremendous amount of of revenue and profit and money that is going through underground channels. So whenever there's a turf battle, a territory battle, it's enforced by gangs with guns. Whenever there is a contract dispute or one guy doesn't pay another guy, it's enforced by gangs with guns. And that's why we see so much you know terrible gun violence in big cities, like you know the the most one, the ones almost always references the city of chicago but it 's not it 's not just chicago it 's in in suburban and rural areas there are deaths that are related to gun violence, all related to the war on drugs um, i've often thought that and, and a lot of people have backed me up on this that there is far more damage to society, far more um violence that comes as a result of the the prohibition of drugs than there is from the damage of the drug itself. Actually, that might be a little bit debatable with the whole opioid crisis, but generally there is a tremendous amount of, of lives that are lost in the war on drugs, all at the hands of guns. And so... This is something that can be done and this is something that you rarely ever hear because those stories don't make the national news. When there is a drive-by shooting and one person loses their life, maybe two, and it's in a poor neighborhood in the inner city, uh, you know, of of Chicago or where uh, wherever it might happen to be in the United States, a lot of times those stories don't make the na- national news maybe might not even make the local news because it's dismissed, it's hidden, it's it's society's dirty laundry. Um, but addressing the war on drugs would save lives if we made if we simply made them legal, and at the same time, we would see a. A far less aggressiveness in our police force, we would see far less money being spent on our incarceration state, our prison system we would see a tremendous amount of savings to for in tax dollars. We just need to redirect that focus and instead of treating drug policy as a um, as a criminal act, we need to th- treat it as a health issue and work to get people off of drugs. That needs to be the approach. Um, and I think that's a creative way that we can see a reduction in, in gun violence. But there's also the angle of suicide. And, um, and, it, and I think if you look at the numbers, the, the amount of suicides by, and, you know, by gun is dramatically more than the number of people that have lost their lives in these terrible mass shootings. Again, this goes back to nihilism. It goes back to a flawed personal philosophy. In many cases, a flawed societal philosophy, where um, people are not valuing their own life. Uh, people f- don't feel like they have worth. They don't feel like they feel like other people always must come first, and they are at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, this is a problem, and some people can't handle it. Some people turn to depression, turn to drugs, and then sometimes they end their lives. And I think addressing that is a crucial thing. And there are things that can be done there. I mean, the things we can do to help our economy are gonna help people feel good about themselves. Because in many cases, having a productive career is one way to build self-esteem. And if we can have more of those cases where people are pursuing productive lives, valuing their life, having self-worth, pursuing their rational self-interest. I think we're going to see a lot less people committing suicide as well. So there are a lot of things that we can do, um, especially the war on drugs angle, that relatively speaking would be easier to address than trying to address these mass shootings. Because those are, I mean, those are difficult to resolve. I mean, we all know the issues related to that and how the people on the left and the right line up. That's a battle that's being fought in America for decades. And that's going to take some time to resolve that because it's such a deeply cultural issue. Um, We should work on it. We have to figure out ways to minimize um, or eliminate these mass shootings. Uh, But there's still a lot of other things we can do to minimize gun violence. So I think that's appropriate. I think what we also need to do, and I said voting is important. I said leadership is important and I think our president is failing us on these issues. Um, but I also think we need to work within culture. And I've talked about how culture is upstream from politics. You know, typically the politicians don't pass the laws until the culture has shifted. Um, but culture doesn't shift until individuals Take action, so if culture is upstream from politics, individual action, individual initiative, individual behavior is upstream from culture. There are things that we can do, and I will give credit here in the city of Poway this morning. I was driving and it was about eleven thirty and I was near the intersection of Twin Peaks Road and Pomerado Road, and I saw a group of protesters out there holding signs um, and they were. You know, they were obviously upset about the gun violence. This is a group that has comes out occasionally to protest against President Trump. Um, Now, whether you agree or disagree with Trump, these are people that are taking personal initiative to try to change minds, to try to stand up for what they believe in and try to affect culture. I think that's noble and I think that's a good thing. That's what I'm partly trying to do in this podcast is to affect culture, to change lives um, and to influence in the best way that I know I, I can. But you know, it was interesting, by the way, um, when I was driving down, you know, Pomerado and Twin Peaks here in the city of Poway, there were about 20 protesters that were on the, what would it be? The Southeast corner where the Jersey Mike's is and they're holding up signs and they're all enthusiastic, but on the Southwest corner. Um, there were two MAGA guys, you know, with American flags and red make America great hats. And they're fighting the good fight because they're fierce, loyal supporters of president Trump and they're expressing themselves as well. And again, that's the beauty of our first amendment. I may not agree with what you say, but I support your rights. Say it. Um, those people are trying to influence culture as well. And that's part of these, that people call them culture wars. Um, but. This is where I think we have an opportunity to change minds, to influence. It's what I'm trying to do in this podcast. It's what I hope that you'll help me do with this podcast. So I ask you, if you are out and about, share this podcast with a friend. Tell people, hey, there's this podcast called the John Riley Project. It's um, it's the video is on YouTube, and we put audio-only episodes out on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and a lot of other audio-only podcast platforms. And it's this guy from Poway, and he talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We talk about politics, typically from the perspective of freedom, from liberty, from individual rights. Um, we talk about capitalism and entrepreneurship. We talk about self-improvement, which I've touched on a little bit here. Um, We talk about sports. We talk about electric vehicles, which I'm a big fan of. Um, And we talk about issues here in our local community in Poway, Rancho Bernardo, Ranchos Penasquitos, Forest Ranch, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Saber Springs, and the greater San Diego County area. So please share this with a friend um, and um, help me spread the word. Now, I've got a second topic I want to get to. You know, I was talking about those two MAGA guys that were on the intersection of Poway Road and Pomerado Road, and they are standing up for President Trump. And I'll tell you what, um, I applaud their loyalty. I applaud their belief um, in their cause, because uh, I have a cause, they have a cause, and we're all fighting for what we believe is morally right. Um, but... I had a couple of incidents that happened over the, this week that were just mind-blowing from my perspective because of the incredibly powerful loyalty that Trump and his supporters have. Um, and, you know, the, the classic line, and Trump said this in the 2016 campaign, he said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters. <laughs> you heard that. And and part of at least when I heard it, and I'm sure a lot of other people heard it, you're laughing at it from the perspective of a joke. Then you're condemning it because why are you encouraging someone to shoot someone? But on the other hand, you're thinking there's an element of truth to that, that the loyalty of his supporters is so strong that he might be able to get away with that. Um, it's not that far from the truth because his team is so loyal. So um, I had, like I said, a couple of incidents and, you know, I'm on social media and if you follow me, um, you know, I I am very active on Twitter and on Facebook, but I try to be, how should I say, um, careful on where I engage. Um, I often will, you know, post a lot of my thoughts probably more, more liberally on Twitter on Facebook, I'm usually a little bit more careful because I have family and friends and I kind of like to keep Facebook for that. I have my own John Riley Project Facebook page, uh, page, which I share all my episodes on. But my regular personal Facebook account, I dabble a little bit with politics. I'll I'll talk with my good friend, Mike Lopez, who's down in Nicaragua. Um, he's a strong progressive and we'll sometimes, uh, you know, have a friendly battle on the ideas, but for the most part, I try to be careful where I go, but every once in a while I'll stick my toe in the water and I know that I'm in a lion's den. And one of the classic ones is as I'll go into the, um, you know, the rock band cake, you know, they, they they were big in the nineties. They had that song, um, Short skirt, long jacket, and i 'm going the distance they 're really cool musicians, really innovative music but their their Facebook page for the band Cake is entirely political and extraordinarily progressive, very big supporters of Bernie Sanders and elizabeth warren and um, and so a lot of times they, they purposely put out very provocative content on their on their page, and when they do that, they attract all kinds of other progressives. And it's actually kind of an interesting marketing strategy for their band, band because they're getting like incredibly strong loyalty from these fans that like them almost for their politics more so than their music. Um, but they will alienate some people too. And they obviously don't care, um, which is funny. So, but every once in a while I will respond to them because I don't consider myself a leftist or a progressive and I know when I do that, when I respond or challenge what it, you know, I might get a little pushback from the band Cake from their top post, but what ends up happening is all their supporters just, it becomes like a a, a gang, a ganging up upon. And I've suddenly, it's like one against a hundred. <laughs> so I go into that knowing that's likely the case, but there's another group um, that I've done the same thing. And, Thomas Sowell, by the way, is a, is a guy there 's a, there's a Facebook group called the Thomas Sowell Foundation. Now, a little bit of a tangent here. Thomas Sowell is an economist that I greatly respect. Um, he is a protege of milton Friedman, big free market guy, big capitalist guy, um, you know very much about individual rights and and liberty, and very aligned with how I see the world. And so when I saw that there was a Facebook group all about um, Thomas Sowell, I said, I got to join this. Well, as I got involved in it, what's happened is, is this group has basically turned into a big Trump support group. And so, and many of Trump's policies and his philosophy are completely different. In fact, almost the exact opposite of Thomas Sowell's perspectives, which makes this so troubling for me. But I want to read to you this this post that someone shared there that was incredible. Um, This this is a a poster that basically has slowly converted over to Trump. And and I had to challenge this. And it's a little bit long, but I want to read it completely. The title is Confession Time. I make it a personal value. Okay, now let me stop a minute. This is not me talking. This is a guy on Facebook that runs the Thomas Sowell Foundation Facebook group. I'm reading his post. I make it a personal value to admit when I am wrong and as such have a confession to make. For those of you who have been members of the Thomas Sowell Foundation Group before the election of Trump, know that I had accurately predicted there was a chance that the press polls were wrong and Trump would win, considering how far left the Democratic Party had swung under Obama. I even posted the picture of Truman holding the infamous news headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. However, you would also recall that I called Trump a self-serving blowhard with bad hair, (laughs) but I voted for Trump because Hillary was the devil incarnate. Many here also said they weren't going to vote in the presidential race because they didn't like either choice. And he goes on to say, now, two thirds of the way through Trump's administration, I have changed my perception. Okay. Again, this is not me talking. This is the, the administrator for the Thomas Sowell Foundation Facebook group. I thought Trump's motivations to be president was purely to serve his own interests, which were better aligned to the country than Hillary's. Now I come to the conclusion that Trump is probably the most honest and patriotic of presidents since Ronald Reagan. Trump has to give up managing his brand and global business. He has taken nonstop abuse from the press and the leftist Democrats and their sheep. He has been falsely accused of everything to include being a Nazi, a rapist, sexual deviant, a puppet of Russia and a racist. His family has been attacked in the press. His business is boycotted Hollywood types, photoshopping him, being decapitated and his kids treated like pariahs. This would have beaten down most people to the point where they could could have given up and just hid in the White House waiting to be set free by the next election. Okay, never mind the fact that a lot of that's true. Okay, but he goes on to say instead of caving, Now, I'm going to get to this. This goes to the loyalty of Trump supporters. He says, instead of caving to the unprecedented pressure from both sides to include government employees and public servants, Donald Trump keeps going strong and has consistently stayed on point, delivering on every single one of his campaign promises, regardless of the opposition and roadblocks thrown up against him by the deep state and the apparatchiks. I don't even know what that word means. I, can think of any, I can't think of any politician that could deliver on their campaign promises like Trump has, despite the difficulty and the deliberate resistance he has faced, despite having many human flaws... The strength of his conviction in the USA and its traditional values of liberty, freedom, and equal treatment is proven unquestionable. Trump's ability to expertly navigate around the deep state self protectionism and get things done is also quite surprising. Those on the left who still hate Trump to the very core of their existence and will never change that perception have now changed their criticism of Trump so that he is no longer a radical moron, but that he is now an evil genius. And this is the last piece of this. Oh my god. All right. At first, when someone called me a Trumpian, it would not have been true. I was not a fan of Trump, only of the fact that he was an op- was not an open socialist. I was not comfortable of being associated with Trump. However, since then I am convinced of Trump's values and convictions as an American and I wholeheartedly support his administration and all of his efforts. Proud to be called a Trumpian. Huh. Woo. I read that and I couldn't let that sit. I had to respond. And and I know I was stepping into a lion's den. I knew I was, but I couldn't not respond to that. Because there was so much in there that was just wrong, that was false, that was um, a complete misunderstanding or a complete denial of factual evidence that was in that statement. Um, but I knew what it, it, what it reinforced to me, and this is really the point of this, is that the defenders of Trump are extraordinarily loyal. Facts don't matter. Alternative facts are what matters. Um, it's, it's like a cult of personality. Um, and so, again, I'll, I'll go into this. So what I did is, again, in, earlier in this when he said, um, I, I find Trump to be patriotic, um, you know, uh, you know, showing the strength of his conviction, convictions in America, traditional values of liberty and freedom. OK, that's in my wheelhouse. OK, when you're talking about liberty and freedom and, and what America is all about. It's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, our inalienable rights, all men being created equal. That's in our Declaration of Independence. That is the moral foundation of America. Never mind the fact that we've had some trouble implementing those ideas, but we've been getting better over time. Um, but I had to challenge it. And what I did is I said, patriotic? Um, Trump campaigned openly on destroying the first amendment when he was a candidate for president in 2015, um, specifically, and also in 2016, because he, he, he came out on stage and said he wanted to close down mosques, which is plainly at odds with religious liberty. He said he wanted to censor parts of the internet to eliminate speech. He believes is dangerous because he was talking about terrorists That is a violation of free speech, a violation of the First Amendment. And he went on to say he wanted a gut libel law to make it easier to sue because he wanted to suppress the press, which again is a direct affront to the First Amendment. So I had to share that. (laughs) And I knew, I just knew I was going to get ganged up on. And sure enough, I did. Um, And during this process, I mean, I, I, I got massive... And swift and fierce pushback. Now, never mind you, this is from the Thomas Sowell Foundation, an economist that's about liberty, individual rights, free markets, capitalism. Um, You know, Trump is he's for tariffs and rigged markets and, you know, banning people and setting up walls and travel bans and and um, this collectivist thinking. Um, So I got people just came after me with uh, and these are Trump supporters making ad hominem personal attacks, um, calling me every name in the book, then they would dismiss the source because they they wouldn't believe what I would say. So I show them the link to, that has like a video of him saying these things from CNN, from Politico, from NPR. And it's just dismissed. They're like, oh, yeah, Politico, you should have sent Pravda. You know, they, So they attack the source. And then when they finally realize that what I'm saying is true, that Trump really did want to ban people from coming to the country based on their religion, which again is a violation of the first amendment because we have freedom of religion in America. People were saying, yeah, that's what he should have done. You know, we got to, we got to keep, you know, the hordes from invading America. So they, once they realized that I was telling the truth, then they decided to just, they were just outright agreeing with Trump that, yeah, the first amendment needs to essentially be tossed aside. Um, And then they say it's out of context. I mean, they make up every excuse in the book. And I'm thinking to myself, this is direct evidence of an uh, an affront on the Bill of Rights at the very core of what America is about. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. And Trump campaigned against that. And still, his supporters line up and they think that he's patriotic and he's for liberty. It it's nonsensical. It it's illogical. It's preposterous. Um it's incredible. And so um you know it, it just demonstrates the fierce fierce loyalty of Trump supporters. And I think that's why Democrats need to be careful and not take it for granted that they're going to win. Now I my hunch is the Democrats probably are going to win depending on who they nominate, but it's no slam dunk because those Trump supporters will not back down. Again, remember he said he could shoot someone in the middle of fifth Avenue and no one now he would lose no votes, but then it got, there was another incident and I was in Twitter and again, I try to pick my battles and I knew it was another one that I just couldn't resist. And, um, do you know who Scott Adams is? He's the, um, Uh, the cartoonist behind Dilbert. He's a very interesting man, and he's very smart. Um, He opened up my eyes to understanding Trump and his rhetoric and the game he's playing and his influencing of society. He saw it very early on. In fact, um, Scott Adams, the the cartoonist, the author of Dilbert, he predicted Trump was going to win very shortly after he made his campaign announcement when he came down the escalator in Trump Tower in New York City. He called it so. He saw um, Trump's propaganda for what it was, and understood the game he was playing well before most people understood. Well before I understood. Um, so I'll give him credit for that. But um, he was um, standing up to the tariffs, you know. So you know, we've been we um, the Amer- Trump has been putting. Tariffs on imported goods, primarily to China, in this trade war. Um, And Scott Adams is saying, I have not heard any alternative theories on how we can make the trade with China better. Um, And he was basically inviting criticism of Trump's trade policy. So, (laughs) again, I couldn't resist. And so I stepped my foot in the water in the lion's den, knowing that I was going to get slammed. And boy, did I. So um, I said, that the other alternative is to establish free trade or freer trade relationships with other Asian nations that excludes China and then have competitive pressure in a marketplace against China use competition to influence markets, you know, like TPP, which Trump killed. And remember TPP was the trans Pacific partnership. And it was essentially like a, a free market or a freer market Um, where America could trade with other Asian nations um, with far less tariffs, far less regulations, and much more free exchange. Um, And, you know, granted, it wasn't a perfect policy and there's some criticism to it, but overall, it moved the needle more in the direction of free markets. It would have put tremendous competitive pressure against China and created a market force to influence China to reduce their inbound tariffs of American goods into China. That's the alternative, which makes sense, right? In a free market, that makes sense, is to have a competitive pressure. If you can't negotiate with one company... Then you switch to another company and and play that, play those companies off of each other if need be. Um, But again, the same thing happened. So I put that out there. Huge response of fiercely loyal Trump supporters, um, attacks, ad hominem attacks on me personally, calling me every name in the book. Fierce defense of Trump, displaying a total ignorance of economics. Now, granted, you know. I studied economics in college. I'm no PhD. um, But I do know that nearly all economists know that trade wars damage economies. Trade wars, there are no winners. The Smoot-Hawley trade wars, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs that were enacted um, in uh, around 1930-ish are one of the key things that put the, the U.S. economy into the Great Depression. Tariffs damage American consumers. Um, And so economists, nearly all economists know this. uh, But Trump has essentially said no, and all of his supporters fiercely lining up about it. And of course, they are all in dismay about large trade deficits. And China's ripping us off uh, because of the large trade deficits. And basically what scott adams was saying is well what's the alternative other than nuclear war so we either he's saying we have to either engage in this trade war with china or we have to go to nuclear war though that's the binary choice so i i just i couldn't couldn't let that go um and so i responded in kind with some of the their um the Trump supporters that were fiercely def- defending his policy. And I. whenever I do this on social media, I never, ever stoop, or at least rarely, <laughs> rarely stoop to the, that, to the gutter of calling names and everything. I still try to politely, persistently, and in a rational and civil tone, express my point. But of course, it gets to the point where it just spins out of control, and then I just eject because uh, it's not worth it. Um, but I want to just sort of set the matter straight on this. About tariffs, cause and trade wars and trade deficits. When people talk about trade deficits, they do so thinking that nations trade with one another. But nations don't trade. People trade. Companies trade. Nations don't trade. What the trade deficit all it really is, is a mathematical aggregation of all the individual trades that are added up. So company A in China sells to company B in the United States. Money flows in one direction, goods flow in another. And then they take all those transactions and add them all up. And then they say one nation buys more from the other nation. But really, nations don't buy from another. People buy from people. Companies buy from companies. People buy from companies. Um, That's important to understand. So a trade deficit really is generally meaningless. I mean, think about it. I have a trade deficit with my grocery store. I give them money. I get stuff back. All my money is going to that, that grocery store. If you think of it in terms of this massive trade deficit, with my grocery store, what you're doing is you're ignoring the value that you got in return. I get all the food that sustains my life because um, trade is ultimately win-win. The, the person, one person gets money. The other person gets a good and they they come out of that transaction better off than they were before that transaction that's why they trade um, but still people get freaked out by this mathematical aggregation of all the trades and think that this is a problem, but it's not not at all because if we're able to import goods from China or some other country, and they're less expensive than goods made in America, and let's assume for the matter that they're the same quality, well, that's a win for the consumer. They're paying less. And what does that mean? That means they have more money left over in their pocket. And that extra money, they can now spend on other things. They can buy more stuff. They can spend more with American companies. They can invest more in America. The economy becomes more efficient, when we do that. Now, are there some people affected by this? Yeah. There are some companies in America that are manufacturing products, but the costs of those are too high. They have trouble competing. And so what they want to do is ask the government to rig the market for them. And what that ultimately is, that's cronyism, where the government uses tariffs or uses regulation to basically block competition or make competition very difficult. And sometimes people say, well, yeah, we want to do that to protect American jobs. But you do so by damaging American consumers because tariffs are a tax on Americans. And that was was interesting when I was talking with these Trump supporters. They they don't believe that they think a tariff is a tax on China. Um, they lack some of these people lack a basic understanding of economics. A tariff is applied to an American company that's at the um, um, at the port where the goods are received, and they pay a duty. They pay a tariff when those goods come in, and then that importer um, will then pass along that tariff down the supply chain to their distributors and retailers, and ultimately to consumers. It's added into the cost of the goods sold. So people will say ultimately consumers pay the tariff. That's true, but it's but the the real tariff, the actual tariff, is paid by an American company in America, the importing company, um, and so it, they're they're damaging. Tariffs are damaging to the American economy, but if we can import less expensive products into the United States. Um, what that ends up doing is we might lose some jobs with some manufacturers, but we're going to create more jobs throughout other parts of the, of the country. I mean, take an example of, let's just say steel. If we were importing steel into the United States and it was less expensive than steel made in America, well, then we can build more buildings and create more opportunity for people in the construction industry, create more office space for more American companies to do business. And all the ancillary um, products and services that come along after a office building is built. So the less expensive the product coming in is a good thing. That's how we shop. We shop for value. Um, And so now you can make an argument, you know, steel is strategic and we need that um, in America, you know, in case of wartime and et cetera. And, And sure, there's an angle to that some steel mills, you know, can still be, you know, kept alive. Maybe they can specialize in certain categories, but ultimately from a purely economic perspective, tariffs are damaging free trade. On the other hand is a huge benefit, not just to Americans, but also to the Chinese. Um, it's win win. That's the nature of trade that especially the nature of free trade. Um, so it's, um, you know Milton Friedman often said this, and Milton Friedman is a Nobel Prize economist who I greatly respect, and he said that tariffs are benefiting the few at the expense of the many. That's very true. Tariffs benefit those small manufacturers in the United States that basically get the benefit of having the market rigged in their favor. But the expense for those tariffs are spread across the the broader economy. Some people have said that the tariffs that are affecting um, products sold in the United States are like approximately eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars per household that in many ways have completely wiped out the Trump income tax cuts. Um, this is a serious problem, so again i I put that out there again. I had to challenge this in Twitter, and you know maybe i 'm a fool for doing it, but um it, the point of all of this is it was just incredible, the fierce loyalty of Trump supporters. And so I think it's going to be very hard for um, the Democrats to unseat Trump. I really do. Um, I look at a lot of the Democratic candidates and I'm going to be doing another podcast episode um, breaking down the Democratic debate they're going to have a hell of a fight on their hands. It's not going to be easy. Um, Some people think it should be a slam dunk because of the things that Trump has done. But in many ways, Trump has emboldened his supporters and they're digging their heels and it's going to be a battle, a fierce one. Um, Changing their minds is going to be hard, but I think we have to focus on changing culture. Again, that's what I'm trying to do in this podcast is trying to affect culture. Um, we need to take responsibility for our own lives, which I talked about in the mass shooting case. We have to affect nihilism. We have to break down nihilism. We have to, rather than demanding we rig the economy to you know, protect our jobs, you know, we look to other people to blame, other people to fix, other people to rig it. We need to look within ourselves. We need to build our own skills, and in the case of these... Um, manufacturing uh, companies that are having trouble competing with China, people in those companies need to see the writing on the wall. They need to take control of their life, control of their career and build skills and adapt and evolve as the, as the, as the nation's economy evolves. But some people just refuse to budge. You know, they, they get a job. They think they should be in that same job for their entire career, for their entire life. I'm sorry that that is old-fashioned thinking. That is the thinking of my parents' generation of the baby boomers and um and of the people before them. Is this notion of being with a company for 30, 40 years, uh staying in the same job. You know, times are different. Um people need to adapt. So, I think in both of these cases, it's it's a philosophy challenge. You know, with the mass shootings, um with the the Trump loyalists, a lot of this is a philosophy matter. It's peop- a lot of people see the world as us versus them. They see it as America versus China. Um, people sometimes, some people don't want to take personal responsibility for their situation. Instead, they want to blame other people. They don't want to pursue their own rational self-interest. Instead, they give up. Um, so, they, in many ways, it's just easier to be- blame the bad guy. And when we have a president. That plays right into that That knows how to blame the other guy and uses that as a mechanism to divide the country, Uses that as a mechanism to um, to essentially win an election. It's scary. It really is. And it's a huge problem. Um, so, you know, Trump knows how to play the game. He does. Um, so it's going to be very hard for the Democrats to win. I'm not rooting for the Democrats. I'm not rooting for Trump either. Because neither, neither side really embraces the things that I believe in. Individual rights, capitalism, peace, tolerance, um, free markets. None of them do. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, so I'm, I'm always fascinated by this. And I'm fascinated by the politics of it. I'm fascinated by the cultural aspect of all that. And that's why I wanted to share with you. Okay, so we're near the end. But I, wanted, I always finish with a closing quote. And this is a little bit of a longer one. But it's a good one. And this is a very recent um, uh, document. It's an, it's an open letter to President Trump that came out yesterday. And it's from Professor Donald Boudreau at the George Mason University. And I hope President Trump will someday come to embrace free trade. But sadly, he shows no sign of moving in that direction. So the, the letter is addressed to Mr. Donald Trump, J. Trump, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. Mr. Trump. Attempting to justify that which is economically and ethically unjustifiable, namely the punitive taxes that you oppose on Americans who purchase imports from China, you, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, declared yesterday about the Chinese that if they don't want to trade with us anymore, that would be fine with me. Who in the hell, sir, do you think you are? What gives you the moral authority to elevate your personal preferences over those of the millions of Americans who choose to trade with the Chinese? What gives you the right to to deny these fellow citizens the gains from trade that they obviously believe they enjoy as a result of such trading? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. Yes, in 2016, you won a national popularity contest, but that victory means neither that your fellow Americans, all 327 million of them, thereby come to share your personal preferences, nor that you've acquired the right to elevate your personal preferences above those of any other individual. All of your huffing, puffing, and pontificating about trade reveal that your eye-popping economic ignorance is matched only by your monstrous arrogance in assuming that you and your sidekicks are entitled to override the peaceful commercial choices of others. Sincerely, Donald J. Boudreaux, Professor of Economics, and Martha and Nelson Getchell Chair for the Study of Free Market Capitalism at the Mercatus Center. George Mason University Fairfax Virginia so thank you Professor Boudreau for that by the way it's pretty interesting to see a free market economist from a, a university speaking out on these sorts of things usually you rarely see that or hear that but that's incredible I think that sums up just about everything I need to say when it comes to the loyalty of Trump's supporters when it comes to free trade when it comes to the trade war and also what it what we talked about earlier in the tragic shootings in El Paso and Dayton. We have a problem with philosophy. We have a problem with violation of individual rights. We have a problem with people seeing the collective before the individual. We have a problem with people not valuing their life or the life of others, not valuing our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is John Riley. This is the John Riley Project, episode number 65. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you very much for listening. And please share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you later, folks. Bye bye.